I've got my biggest critic sitting right here. So when two elders um, get up to talk on a Sunday morning, I know some of you thought I was probably in trouble. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> having such thoughts. Uh, anyways, we are uh, kicking into a, um, a sermon biography series on Francis Schaeffer and a little bit of why we're, we're doing this. We're gonna have, it's, this is the second year in a row, so I'll, I'll refrain from calling it annual, but it's going to be annual kind of every year. Um, and basically the idea is simply this, when you, when you look at any period in history, there's always things that jump out at you and you wonder why in the world were those things able to happen? Why did that take place? Why did um, good people allow that to happen? Why did people living in Germany allow uh, things to go on with um, Nazism and Hitler and some of the killing there? Why did Americans allow slavery? And, and you kind of wonder some of these things and the big idea is... Uh, it's easier for us to see than it was for them. That in their culture, uh, because it was around them and they grew up in it, they were kind of numb to some of the things that stand out in relief to us, that we see clearly. And what's always terrified me as I've looked at history uh, is I know that there's things like that that are going on around us today that we're numb to. That 50 years from now, that if you were alive, you would look back on and you would say, you know, how in the world did I allow that to kind of go on around me? How in the world did I not see that? How in the world did, did it just kind of um, flow, did I just flow with it? So the value of looking at history um, is so that we don't make some of its mistakes, just so that we can learn by seeing some of the things that are going on today in someone else's time, in someone else's place, and, and um, be, yeah learn from it. Um, so here's the deal. I got a quote. I got a quote in your um, notes page there. And it's funny because I talk about quality later on at some point. And, um, so I think they got cut all crooked just for an illustration. I don't know. Um, but here's what G.K. Chesterton said. G.K. Chesterton said, the greatest illusion of all is the illusion of familiarity. The greatest illusion of all is the illusion of familiarity. And so in picking Francis Schaeffer, I, I did it because Schaefer, for me, at least a certain segment of his life, really jumps out as probably one of the greatest examples of what's needed, I think, in the church today. That when we're in Bend, Oregon, or anywhere else in the United States, where the church needs to go and how we need to learn how to live as Christians, that Francis Schaefer got it. And there's a difference between someone that copies someone else and somebody that kind of gets it on their own and authentically and, and organically kind of works that out. There's something about that that's just amazing. So uh, I think Francis Schaeffer is a prophet to us in that sense. So it's kind of why I picked him and why I wanted to spend the next two weeks looking at his life and times. This morning, what we're going to mostly look at is just the cultural issues. So the times. And when I talk about the cultural issues, I'm talking about the things going on outside the church and the things going on inside the church. And what I want to just hopefully take a, a good chunk of time to, to really unpack for you is to show you how what is going on outside the church today is radical individualism, radical freedom, radical autonomy, um, detached from anything objective, transcendent, or external. Okay, uh, And that that's not only kind of outside the church, but we've been conditioned inside the church to think as consumers to think as individual people that we're at the center of everything and it's about us as individuals and our own freedom, our own choice, our own desires and things like that. And so those things, the culture outside, the culture inside the church, both kind of converge in this whole idea of radical individualism. And then I'm going to hopefully just try and show you a little bit about how Francis Schaeffer kind of can teach us where to go with that. So we're going to start with the culture outside the church and we're going to take a, a big step back and look at macro things. And, and so it's broad generalization, big picture stuff. Um, if you love history, this is the kind of stuff you love because you can see trends and you see the flow of ideas and how one domino kind of hits another and some things like that. But Francis Schaeffer uh, was born in the States, grew up in the States, and basically was an evangelical pastor committed to the fundamentals of Orthodox Christianity. Okay? When he was in high school, he got saved. He didn't like the Bible, dismissed the Bible. But he read a bunch of Greek philosophy, and it brought up the key questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? And what's the point? Those kinds of things. 
And he had enough integrity to say, I can't dismiss the Bible and Christianity if I haven't read it. And this is a, bit, this is a big hot button for me. Um, if you want to just vocally dismiss evolution or things like that, take the time to read an evolutionist or two so that you actually know what they're saying, you know, and then dismiss them, okay? Um, but we've got to have more integrity than the world, and the world puts words in mouths, and they build up um, in philosophy, you call it straw men, and they can't fight back, they can't speak for themselves, and you just knock them down. And, and we ought to have enough intellectual credibility to learn how other people think, analyze it, scrutinize it, and be able to objectively point out flaws and not just throw a lot of emotion at things. And I love that Francis Schaeffer, as a high schooler, understood that if he wanted to dismiss the Bible, he had to read it. Um, so he read the Bible, and, and he came, came to the conclusion that the Bible answered all of these philosophical questions that had arisen when he studied Greek philosophy. And so he went on and became a pastor and was committed to Scripture and the, the Orthodox Christianity. He was kind of a part of that movement um, early on in the 20th century. And after World War II, he had an opportunity to travel to Europe and check on just the status of the church in Europe, in, in war-torn Europe, what, what's going on with church and the churches that used to exist and things like that. And he fell in love with Europe and the culture over there. Uh, he, he had always been, Schaefer had always been huge on the arts. And one of the things he did was, uh, when his kids were young, about the, the age of my daughters, um, he had three daughters, and then like ten years later he had a son. And so uh, I took, <laughs> took great encouragement from that. Um, but one of the things he would do with his daughters before he had a son is on his days off, he would take them to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, uh, in St. Louis. And... And he would just walk the halls and make up games and ask them questions. Which one would you put in your, your bedroom if you could take one home? And, and he, he gave a gift of an appreciation of arts and culture to his daughters, even before he went on mission. So, I mean, this guy was prepared for this, I think. But he, after going for a year to Europe, uh, was sent back to mainly do children's kind of programs. And he was sent back working on children's programs in a, a little village in Switzerland, kind of as a home base, and he would spread out from there. And as the story kind of goes, he gets to a point where being out of the, the fundamentalist culture begins to see a, a part of it that was really distasteful to him. And he began to realize, you know, we're defending truth a lot, but we just don't have a lot of love. There's just not a lot of grace and, and all of this energy we're pouring into fighting apostasy and heresy and drawn lines and things like that. And it really kind of shook him. And he gets to a point where he went to his wife and said, um, and I, I heard uh, in an interview with Edith Schaefer, his wife, um, he died back in, I think, 84. And I think she might even still be alive, but um, she way outlived him. But... Uh, when she tells the story, he came to her in Switzerland and said, Hey, uh, I've got something to tell you and you're not going to like it. And he says, I've got to go back to the beginning. I've got to strip it all the way down. Um, and I've got to find out if this is really true. If the Bible is really true. If I really believe these things. If I, if I really um, can go forward with confidence and teach these things to other, uh, others. I've got to go all the way back to the beginning and just... Put scripture in my faith to scrutiny and see if it holds up. And so his wife was gracious and said, take all the time you need. And so Schaefer began walking around the Swiss Alps and just rigorously analyzing his belief system and scripture and um, some of the key tenets of the faith. And when it would rain, he had a little barn where he'd go up with the hay and he would analyze his faith. And what ended up happening after a long period of time is, is he kind of emerged and he was more committed than ever to the authority of Scripture and that it has the answers to the, the philosophical, uh, philosophical questions that we're, we're wrestling with and that the key tenets of Christianity were, were true. That he, he wanted to put his whole life into teaching them. And so he came up with a couplet, according to Edith, Edith Schaefer, at the end of this season of his life, and he started using this phrase, true truths. He said, it's really a true truth. You know, what he meant was, I don't, I'm not just taking this as a truth for me. This is actually something solid that I can go out and, and teach to people. And so because of those kind of two events, seeing that the fundamental side just didn't have the compassion kind of going, 
Um, and then just really analyzing his faith for the second time in, in his life and taking it down to, to the beginning, he kind of emerged and broke ties with the missions board and started his own little thing in Switzerland called Labrie. Labrie is French for shelter. And he took a chalet, and he and his wife, um, believing that God is real, just prayed that he would bring people to them and that he would bring money to them. Uh, and then he would bring workers, those three things. And so the first book he published, kind of after that whole Labrie, beginning of Labrie, was a book entitled, The God Who Is There. Because that was the bedrock at this point for him, is that God is really there. It's a true truth. And we have to live our lives in a way that reflects that. So he said, if God's really there, he'll send the people. So they just sat around and prayed that God would send people. And sure enough, people began to come. And it's kind of the beginning of this whole thing. And we'll get later to how he ministered to them. But here's the worldview of the people that were coming to Schaefer. The people from all over Europe that were coming to Schaefer. And they were coming steeped in a worldview that was heavily atheistic and influenced by um, a philosophical system called existentialism. Now, atheistic and kind of anti-church because of several things. And and going all the way back a couple hundred years, there's something really unique about America and the separation of church and state. Okay, And we don't understand what it's like in, in uh, countries where the state um, basically fostered a relationship with one religion and one kind of branch of that one religion. And resources and power and money and influence kind of would flow from the political world um, into that church world. So if you wanted to wield influence, you could go up through the church ranks and basically be kind of in a position to wield influence that way. And it was oppressive. What happened then is the church structures don't allow for freedom of religion and they force themselves on you. So tax money goes to religion and things like that without your choice. And so when the French revolted and, and they had their revolution, they weren't just like the Americans kind of trying to throw off the king. They were also thrown off kind of all the oppressive structures that had kind of kept them down and taken away their liberties. And liberty and fraternity are some of the big hallmarks of the French Revolution. And so the church, kind of the whole idea of the church controlling and being over, they wanted to get rid of. Okay? There was religious wars in Europe um, for hundreds of years as religions fought back and forth. And so the cultural landscape in Europe was, was very much to the point where religion and the systems of religion are power and control and they're identified with the old order and we want to be out from, out from underneath those and have liberty. And so it's a really interesting that dynamic that comes uh, along through the Enlightenment in Europe. It doesn't really come along in the same way in America because we have freedom of religion. And so that coupled with World War I, World War II, and just the massive scale of destruction and death and killing and evil, a, a lot of people just had kind of lost faith. They lost faith. How could God allow this to happen? And what answers are there really in the old way of doing things? Because look at where we're at. We're supposed to be civilized and look at what's going on. And so there's just a lot of hopelessness and a lot of despair and a lot of we can't go to God for answers. That's the old order kind of thinking. And out of that came a philosophical model called existentialism. And Jean-Paul Sartre in France, um, kind of in the 40s and then 50s, really puts this thing forward. And the idea of um, the, the, the impact of existentialism is actually unique in the history of ideas. And it's unique for this reason. Um, typically, if you look back uh, a thousand years or so in the Western tradition, ideas would affect society by beginning with the philosophers. And then over a generation or two, philosophers would teach or disciple um, others who would then get that into the arts. So these new ideas would eventually, over time, work their way into the arts or writing or music, um, the kinds of things that then influence culture. Does that make sense? But you'd have a lag between kind of the ivory tower philosopher and when it actually begins to influence culture, sometimes 50 years before an idea would seep down kind of into just mass culture. With existentialism, what was so wild about it was almost all of the existentialists, including Sartre, were also artists. 
They wrote, uh, they wrote plays. They wrote novels uh, as well as philosophical works. And so their philosophical ideas almost immediately just inserted themselves right into the culture, especially with kind of the backwash of the war and all the destabilization going on, and it's now this kind of new framework of ideas. Now, existentialism believed this. Sartre was a, um, a huge atheist, and what he wanted to do was affirm the, the unique radical freedom of individuals. The unique radical freedom of individuals. Now, the, up until this point in, in most of the history of thought, um, what happens is man is, is related to the Imago Dei. And Imago Dei simply means, it's Latin for image of God. So if you open um, and look in Genesis 1.27, it'll say that God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them in his own image. And so theology and philosophy and kind of the starting point for all these things was always the image of God that man is unique, man is special, because he's related to or connected to something external, something transcendent, something fixed. Okay, What makes you valuable? You bear the mark of God. You reflect his glory. You, you've got that in you. You're valuable. What are you supposed to be as you grow up and mature? Well, you're supposed to reflect God, the worth and value of God. That's the goal. That's where you're aiming at. And so the saying was this, that essence, don't write this in your notes because we're going to change it. Essence, E-S-S-E, essence, precedes, P-R-E, once you right? precedes, coffee, existence. <laughs> wow. I have the one from the first service. I can just put it up. Okay. Essence precedes existence. So you're made in the image of God. That's your essence. That's inside. That's what makes you valuable. And that's going to determine and dictate the direction that you ought. Okay. Ought is a huge word. Not that you might could go. It's like one option of many. But that you ought to go. That this is the fixed reality. You aim. Your essence determines your existence. What, what you're going to be, where you're going to go, what you should do is determined by your essence. Now what Sartre comes along and says, and he says there is no God. There is no Imago Dei. Um, you're radically free as a unique individual to determine whatever course you're going to take and to become whoever you're going to be. So the idea is here, you're going to actualize yourself and create your own essence. Your own unique essence. So Sartre changes it and he says existence. Is it really an A or is that an E? Existence precedes... It's on the screen. Yeah. Is it on the screen? <laughs> 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 Alright, and so Sartre comes along and he says, existence precedes essence. There's nothing external to you. There's nothing fixed. There's nothing transcendent. There's nothing objective. All there is is you and your unique ability to choose. And so begin making your unique choices, guided by yourself and nothing external to yourself, and create yourself. Become who you are. Okay? Now, that's amazing. Um, he just flops it all the way around and sets us on this course. So this is kind of the European context, and it's radically individualistic. And people coming to Labrie in the, in the 60s and the 70s, they're coming in, and they're lost. They're in a fog, and they're confused, and they've tried all these different options, and it just makes them more and more depressed, and there's dead ends. And they can't sort it all out, and they come to Schaefer. And Schaefer doesn't just turn around and preach at them and say, you're an idiot. <laughs> just do what you know is right, and that's that. Schaefer begins to reason with them philosophically and get down at the level of worldview and say, you have bought into a system, a paradigm. And you're living that out, but you've never questioned that paradigm. 
You've never like looked at it and said, is this actually true? And so he begins reasoning with them. And, and what he's going to try and show them that is, without the image of God, does essence even mean anything? Becoming something or not becoming something, does it even really mean anything? And existence, well, well, why not just have a Hitler wipe everybody out? You can't say that that's objectively wrong. You, I mean, you, there's nothing outside of just unique individual people. So unique individual Hitler with a unique little mustache, you know, he can come along and say, I don't care about existence. So, you know, you, I'm just going to cut you off at your little self-actualization stage because that's what suits me and that's my own choice and that's how I'm developing my unique essence. And so there's no way to ground any kind of a, a morality or an ethical framework that allows for anything to grow or to flourish. Okay? And so Schaefer begins to try and expose these things so that he can get people thinking and, and understanding that, you know what, I bought into a, a framework or a paradigm that's the real problem in my life. And that if I get rid of that and begin realizing that God made me and He has a plan for me and there's a goal and maturity means something and obedience has a point. It's directional. It's like a street sign. Um, you know, we, inher we inherited this puritanical kind of tradition that obedience is an end. Why, why obey? Well, just because. That's our duty. And God always in Scripture gives um, the things that he commands with promises. Like, hey, do this so that. And obedience is a means to an end. And so we grow up as kids and we ask, why obey God? And people say, you know, shut up and stop asking questions like that. And then we grow up into young adults and we say, well, then I'm not going to obey God. Because you can't give me a reason. And Schaefer began giving people reasons like, don't you get it? This whole biblical framework and the, the commands and, the, and all this other stuff, God gave you because he made you in his image. He knows how you work. Just like the guy that designed a car knows how the car works. And these commands are how to live your life so that you can best become who you already are and find happiness in the good life and that and joy and peace and everything else. And so Schaefer reasons that way. Um, in America, we are at the exact same point. We've just arrived there differently. Okay? This point of radical freedom, radical individualism. And so our path's a little different. Our path starts with um, pragmatism. And pragmatism is a philosophical framework unique to America. It's kind of the only thing that America has contributed to philosophy. Um, and um, it's a group of guys. And it's James, William James, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, and um, later on, Dewey, John Dewey, and it begins kind of after the Civil War. These guys are all intelligent guys, grew up in Boston, exposed to Emerson and the abolitionists, and they fight in the Civil War. Oliver Wendell Holmes all the way through it gets shot three times. And they kind of come out of the Civil War, and here's what's happened is during the Civil War, a book has arrived in the United States called Origin of the Species. Okay? And it rocks the, the intellectual community in America. And what it does is it, it basically undercuts the idea that we're created and that there's something valuable um, inherent to us. And it sets us right on this path again of there's nothing external to us in some sort of a, of a framework or objective values or ethical system or morality. Um, we're just evolved. And that's kind of all there is. And so they, the pragmatists begin to try and formulate a way of how do we view truth if we can't, if we can't tie it to something external and objective. And so it was begun by Charles Saunders Pierce and then picked up by James. And the idea with the pragmatists is simply this. Um, and I think I've got a quote. Truth um, happens to an idea. You know, truth is what happens to an idea. It's when it gets cash value is when it becomes pragmatic or practical um, or has utility to it. And so let me try and explain it this way. Um, Fifty years ago, if we had a guy, um, and I, we'll make the guy the bad guy and the girl the good girl because that reflects reality. Um, if you have a guy that says smoking's not bad for you, and a gal that says smoking is bad for you, okay, well, who's right? Which is true? And what... Pragmatism would basically argue is, um, as we've moved forward, 
we've been able to determine that smoking is harmful to individuals and to communities. And so over time, we've been able to now see that the idea that we should call true is the one that says smoking is bad for you. But why? And the reason is that pragmatism working in America borrows from John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism the idea of a harm principle. And um, J.S. Mill, his whole deal was the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. Okay, so harm, okay, is how you adjudicate between good for people and not good for people, right? So the greatest amount of good, we're going to look at harm. So you guys have all grown up in it. We've all seen it. Smoking's fine until all of a sudden the, the studies come in and, and it's, it's harmful. And now that it's harmful, it's not fine anymore. And so now we go back and say smoking is bad for you. Does that make sense? So pragmatism kind of works itself at, out that way. It's like this grand experiment of ideas and, and some ideas getting the label of truth as it goes along, but it's truth because it works. But why the harm principle? Why do we, why do we borrow that in and where do we get that from? I mean, does it matter if we harm or not harm? That's got to be tied to something. Is it the, the good of a lot of people, where does that become valuable? It's an arbitrary thing that democracy pulls in but the pragmatic structure can't ground that itself. The other thing about pragmatism is if you don't have science saying one thing harms someone and the other thing doesn't, then everything's fair game. So pornography, is it bad? Well, if it doesn't harm anyone, you can't say that it's bad. Um, other things that we do in our culture, if I can't show you that it harms people, then you're just going to be able to say, according to pragmatism, hey, this is my truth. And you can't tell me that it's wrong. And so there's really no way to, to say that morality is fixed. There's nothing objective. There is no God. There is no transcendent values that come in. Let me explain it just a little bit further. Here's how Oliver Wendell Holmes puts it. And Holmes became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And so we'll explain how that influences it in just a second here. But here's what Holmes says to a friend in a letter. He says, you respect the rights of man. I don't. Except those things a given crowd will fight for, which vary from religion to the price of a glass of beer. I also would fight for some things, but instead of saying that they ought to be, I merely say they are part of the kind of world that I like, or should like. Okay, so when Holmes fought in the Civil War and got shot three times, he was doing it because he was connected to an abolitionist movement that thought slavery was objectively wrong. Why? Because the slaves were made in the image of God. And they were people too. They were valuable. And so it was an ought. Slavery is something we ought to be against. Holmes comes out of the Civil War, looks at um, 600 to 800,000 people dead from fighting disease, everything else, and he says, was this worth it? Was this, all this death, was it worth it? Um, if there are no objective values, if evolution just holds sway. And so what Holmes began to say later is abolitionists can fight for things, but what they should say instead is, this is how we think the world, um, this is how we would prefer the world to look. Or how we would prefer to have things. And you can fight for it, but don't say it's how it ought to be. Okay, does that make sense? So here's how Holmes continues on. And he says this, and I think it's amazing. Um, he says, all I mean by truth is the path I have to travel. All I mean by truth is the path that I, given my own internal um, value system that I create, truth now is the path that i got to travel to be true to myself. And it might mean picking up arms, it might not. Now when he comes into the legal system, he begins to say, how do you, how do you become a judge and determine between things when you don't have a standard to go by? You can't really do that. So he begins to say, well, what we ought to do is legislate for the greatest peace. Because when people believe things too strongly, is where Holmes kind of weighed in. He says, if people believe things too strongly, sooner or later they're going to come to blows over it. 
If you have strong opinions, religious convictions, things like that, someone else does too. Sooner or later, you're going to fight over it, says Holmes. So he says is what we need to do is get rid of those, the strength of those beliefs and go down the middle and try and get society to kind of come down the middle so that we get the most peace and the most harmony so that we don't have civil wars like we had over the slavery issue. And so instead of using the legal branch to determine things, he begins to use it to move things. And so a lot of people would attribute the whole idea of the legislative branch or the judicial, uh, judicial branch legislating things, okay, moving society forward. A lot of people would trace it back to Holmes. And then Holmes, when confronted with things of how do you decide what to do based on like which one is right or wrong, would see it as uh, I have to go down the path that I have to go down. That's truth for me, and that's how I have to vote. But there's no objective, transcendent set of values that are going to inform that, that are going to speak to that. And so we really go on this road of hopefully unity, hopefully keeping the peace, but it's whoever's kind of in power and the truth that they have is going to begin to influence things. And so John Dewey, when he gets to setting up the American um, kind of educational system, the father of, of American education, he begins to do the same thing. It's how do we get everyone kind of going in the same direction so that we don't come to blows over things. If we, teach, if we teach our young people to have disagreements, then we're going to be fighting each other. And so we need to go down the middle and teach them one variety of truth, one take on it, one spin on it, one way of seeing it. And so the whole idea of politically correct and educating along that one stream kind of comes in. And it's a fascinating thing um, about democracy and education. If you ever want to borrow it, it's a, uh, it's, I think it's out of print. Um, Reinhold Niebuhr... Uh, amazing scholar. It was a uh, was a Winston Churchill used him as one of his advisors. Winston Churchill named his uh, dog after him, um, something like that. <laughs> but Niebuhr wrote a book called Children of Light, Children of Darkness, and he basically said that democracy will always educate out of the next generations the very things that it used um, to birth itself. And so democracy believes in, in a bunch of things that it borrows from religion. That we need to have multiple party systems. Why? Because um, it's important to value the opin opinions of other people. We don't just control people. We respect people and learn to work together. Why do we have different branches of government? Because man is inherently evil and you hand us power and sooner or later there's going to be corruption. Um, so we borrow all of these ideas that come from the traditional Judeo-Christian worldview, and we bring these in and we grow up on that foundation, that you can't trust any one politician with power, that you need multiple voices speaking into this thing, and that people have the right to the freedom of speech. They have the inherent right and the dignity to be able to express their beliefs, because people are valuable. Every single person is valuable. So we have these values in democracy, and what... Niebuhr argues is that we come along to education and because there's different religions and different value systems, um, we kind of have to come to the middle where everybody's at and kind of the lowest common denominator type of an idea and just teach that. We can't teach one religion. We can't teach one system of, of values or ethics. And so we instruct kids and then multiple generations down the road, uh, we have a generation that wakes up and says, uh, I don't like what those people say. Why would I give them freedom of speech? I mean, I don't care about them. They're not valuable. They don't mean anything. Why don't I silence them? And why would I have multiple party system things when that just gets in the way of my wanting to control things and me being able to actualize my personal truth and how I think should, things should and ought to go? And what happens is, is democracy borrows these values and what will eventually occur is we out-educate ourselves and, and then it becomes radically individualistic and we don't respect people and we don't respect certain types of um, morals and values and ethics and we can't really function the same way we once did. And it's a fascinating situation that's playing out slowly as America kind of crawls along. So the interesting thing is, is American pragmatism. Truth happens to an idea. It's not external, it's self-created. Okay? Um, we come along, and we're not going to take much time on it, but the whole idea of post-modernity. 
in post um, postmodernism beginning again with another philosopher named Derrida in France and, and kind of moving along does a lot of different things, but it basically says the Enlightenment system can't give us all the answers we need. And not only that, but because of Einstein's relativity and quantum mechanics, and it's a bad use of physics here, um, everything's relative. So relativism kind of creeps in. Now it was Protagoras who first said, man is the measure of all things. All the way, he's a pre-Socratic philosopher. Man is the measure of all things. Protagoras was an agnostic. I don't know if there's a God or not. If there is no God, then everything's relative. We determine what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down. Man is the measure of all things. So the idea when postmodernism comes in and says, we can't know anything with absolute certainty, then everything's relative and you can just kind of make it up. So I've had conversations with people before in Bend um, that'll say, you know what, if I jumped off the window on that second floor, you can't tell me with certainty that I'd hit the ground. Because of um, the laws of, because uh, of indeterminacy at the quantum level. And, I'm, and, and I won't tell you what I'd say back. <coughs> but you know, the fact that at the quantum level things are indeterminate, we can't make accurate predictions and things like that, uh, has a lot of things to do with the size, with the fact that our measuring instruments are so much larger than the quantum level everything else. But what people don't realize is when you get a little bit above that, Newton's laws of physics take over and they're accurate. <laughs> and things act according to natural law. And if you jump off the second floor window, you're going to hit the ground, you know? Um, and that's just true. Okay, but postmodernism wants to borrow a bunch of these things because it throws off the restraint and says everything's a grab bag. You can't say anything with absolute certainty. Um, and so the interesting thing about that whole worldview is this claim. Um, there is no absolute truth. And if anyone ever says that to you, there is no absolute truth, you just look at them and say, truly? Um, because it's an absolute truth claim that there is no absolute truth. And so it's an inconsistent worldview. You can't live in that world of saying that everything is relative. You just can't live there. And people use it because if we bring on these systems, then I don't have to deal with guilt. I don't have to deal with headaches. I don't have to listen to what you think about um, oughts and should with me growing up and becoming mature. I don't have to listen to anybody. I'm just going to chart my own course. And we celebrate that and we thump our chest and say, I am man, I am woman, and I am going to chart my own destiny and I am going to become me. And my existence will determine my essence and I will be miserable, and I will be depressed, and I will be in a fog. And I need, eventually, when I realize that it doesn't work that way, it sounds so glamorous, doesn't it? You know, on, on, on the big screen or on the billboards, doesn't that worldview just sound so glamorous, adventurous? Strike out and create a whole new reality for what it means to be a person, and it's going to be called whatever, <coughs> whoever you are. And it sounds so glamorous, and it leaves us so empty and so lost, and we need a Francis Schaeffer community, or we need a Francis Schaeffer individual that can come along and actually say, man's not the measure of all things. Put that worldview to the test, uh, scrutinize it, analyze it. Have you just adopted it, and you're trying to live it out, and you're lost? Go back and say whether this thing was worth adopting in the first place. And we need a Schaefer, and we have to understand culture, and we need to be a church community that doesn't um, throw off the life of the mind. Um, there's a horrible tradition in the last hundred years in America, started by the fundamentalists, and then the whole um, Pentecostal movement, that's my phone, um, the whole Pentecostal <laughs> movement kind of went in with it, and it's basically this, the fundamentalists said, um, just roll the button and it'll stop ringing. Okay. Uh, Fundamentalists basically said uh, the academy and intellectuals where all the bad things are coming, and so we just need to run away from them and not talk to them and not think, you know. Um, and then the whole problem with the Pentecostal movement was it looked at it looked down on the idea of having to think through things because of a runaway view of the gift of prophecy. And the runaway view of the gift of prophecy was basically this. Um, why do I need to know what the Bible says if, if I could just pray to God and God would just tell me whatever the heck truth is? 
And so when God tells me something, that's more true than what's in here. Because I heard it just from God. It's direct revelation. And we don't even read Scripture long enough to know that if someone claims to be a prophet and he's wrong in the Old Testament, you remember what the penalty was? Um, stone, not the hippie variety, too. Um, it's, <laughs> it's get killed. Okay? And so these you know, people run around saying, God told me you're supposed to marry so-and-so, or God told me, you know, and we control other people with that. And we paint, thus saith the Lord's around, and that's not what God had in mind. And, and so the, the kind of Pentecostal movement took a view of prophecy that led to anti-intellectualism. And not only that, they thought that God was going to come back so imminently, Jesus was going to come back so soon, that what's the point of scholarship? Why read a book when tomorrow Christ is going to come back? Now, the, 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 we're supposed to believe that if, if we're obedient, it says that God will do good to 10,000 generations of our kids. I mean, that's kind of like a promise in Scripture that God loves the people that love Him so much that He'll do good for like 10,000, thousands of generations. You know how far out that is? So I don't know if Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to be another 2,000 years. But what I know is it's not for me to live as if the world's going to end tomorrow. There's a lot of people that have lived like that, and they look really silly now. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your mind. Right? When Jesus was asked questions by the Pharisees, how did he answer them? And the guy was, was witty, and he was wise, and he was smart, and he would out-debate anybody that asked him a question. Um, he didn't just throw words at him, accuse him of things, call them names, and, and a lot of the things that the last hundred years in some circles have kind of crept up is how we deal with challenges, intellectual challenges. And I think we need this whole idea of loving God with our mind um, like a Schaefer, and being able to analyze worldviews and defend worldviews. Um, Paul did that when he went up to Athens and met with philosophers. He just didn't say, um, hear ye, hear ye, I've come because you guys are stupid. Um, <laughs> he said, hear ye, hear ye, I've come to tell you about a God, and you know what, I'm going to even use your own philosophers and poets to try and show you that they even knew about this. Uh, when we get to church culture, so that's outside of church We've got philosophical systems coming into play that make us buy into a worldview where I'm radically autonomous and free, and I'm an individual, and there's nothing objective outside of that. In the church culture in America, coming out of World War, World War II, um, the baby boom and kind of the 50s life and, and how idyllic that was and the suburbia and everything else, and you've got the culture of church was this. I go to church... Because it's cultural. Amazing rates of church attendance, um, stability of families and multiple generations of family going. And it was just what you did in Norman Rockwall, America. Does that make sense? And what happened when we get to kind of um, the 70s is people begin to question authority and say, well, I know that's what my parents did, but why am I going to go to church? It's boring. Or it's irrelevant. Or I don't know if I agree with those ideas. Uh, I don't like the music. And so people begin to question it and, and stop going. And right about the same time in the late 70s, a new model of church kind of comes out. And this model is basically going to treat people as consumers. And they're going to take the whole big business thing that's booming and they're going to say, we're going to do it like Walmart. And the customer is always right. And we're going to meet your felt needs. And we're going to do that by... Um, entertaining you and making it all about you so that anything you want or desire we're going to just do that and give you that and so it's a consumer culture and we're going to build big churches that way and, and if you look at churches you can still see churches in this model and bend you can see churches in this model and bend and in the last I'd say six or seven years you see a new um, kind of mode of church coming about and I would call it this I'd call it missional and I think this is where Francis Schaeffer is kind of prophetic for us. Some of you are wearing bracelets we handed out that say, it's not about me. And that's the missional creed. It says, you know what? God didn't make church to be about me. You know, there were some good things here with the cultural thing. Um, 
generations would be in the same church. They did great potlucks, you know. They kept the main things the main things, and there's some great things about it. This generation of church did some great things too. They brought on quality. Um, they they were willing to move fast and go far, and were able to accomplish a lot of things. Um, but God didn't make us to be the center of church. He's the only thing that's supposed to be the center. So this missional thing comes along and says, it's not about me. Now, there's three different ways that we can cash that out. And we're going to have to start hurrying. Um, we can say it's about truth. It's about God. It's about truth. It's about the Bible. And that's that. You know. And if we get high-centered over here, we're going to become legalistic. We're going to become like the Pharisees. And we're going to just be off on one kind of imbalanced thing again. Um, it's not how God wants it to be. And we can make it about love and about other people. Um, but if we get high-centered over here without the truth, we're just going to be the, the social gospel again. But we don't have the image of God's side of it. We're just loving people, but we don't know why we're doing it. Why are people even valuable? And I think the other thing we can do is, um, be cult um, is would be culture and relevance. So art and aesthetics and things that matter to people because we live in society, we're community beings, um, art, those kinds of things, and then relevance, be all things to all people. Paul would go into a different culture and he would figure out how to talk to those people. And if we get too far high-centered on this one, if you're following church trends at all, I would call this the emergent church. The emergent church. Um, you know, the Bible's kind of you know, awkward this, this, these days to people and it says like holy bible on it and it's the wrong kind of font and all my friends think it's kind of weird and and so let me just be relevant but begin to pitch truth and so when we talked about it as staff i was like you know god makes us with certain passions and and certain gifts and, and certain directions and that's okay and the whole idea is that we as we come together as a community and you begin to diagram it we're all over the map here but we begin to balance out and this ought to be Antioch right here in the middle. It's not about me. It's about God, the glory of God, truth, scripture, something outside of me, objective. It's also about love, like Francis Schaeffer found out. We've got to have compassion. I also have to be missional and learn to be a missionary. I'm a stranger in this world. As a Christian, God says we're strangers, we're sojourners. It's not about me, and so that means culture belongs to somebody else. Let me figure out their language and figure out how to talk to them in that language about their worldview, their assumptions, how they live their life. Um, art and beauty are things God created, and we can use them to speak volumes. Art gets right, right to the heart. And so we, you know, we can use art in the church for God's glory and, and these kinds of things, but we want to balance it out and become wise and mature. And I think Francis Schaeffer, with what he did at Labrie, and calling people unto himself in community and learning how to love them, learning how to speak their language, and also at the same time, all the while at the same time, affirming the orthodox tenets of Christianity kind of really gives us a model. So if you've ever heard me talk about the coffee house that Antioch wants to, to create, my model for that is Labrie that Francis Schaeffer had, and taking people and spending years sometimes with them in dialogue about worldviews, about the history of ideas, about why we think the way we think and whether that works or not. And then scripture and putting it to the test and showing them that God really has answered all the major questions of life and that it really is a true truth. And so we can be balanced that way. And then just the last thing I would say, because I think it's important, everything we've come back to here outside in culture and then even inside in the church culture wants to make you think you're a little God and that it's all about you and you just need to be comfortable. Everything caters to you. And, and the, the trend that bugs me the most inside the church is this, and I call it the me and Jesus trend. And it's basically every book you read, everyone you talk to, it's as if I'm a hand, and um, because you know we're all a part of the body of Christ. It's like I'm a hand, and, and if you put a little hand on a table here, like a little puppet hand, it would make a lot of sense. And this little hand is running after Jesus and going, Hey, Jesus, um, it's me and you. And we're going to rock the world. We're going to make such a difference in this world. And it's me and you, Jesus. And we're going to run fast. And we're going to speak loudly. And we're going to um, feel greatly. And we're going to reason well. And we're going to just take over the world, me and you, Jesus. And it's this little hand talking. And it looks ridiculous. 
Okay? We're all supposed to be a part of the body of Christ. And, and we're supposed to be in this community that gives us all value and worth as a whole. Here's an interesting thing. Open up to the New Testament and try and find one place where Jesus is talking to just one person by himself. Try, I mean, it's a fun thing. Try and find a place where Jesus is talking to just one person without other people around. Now, surely in Hebrews it says we can come boldly before the throne of God, and we can pray to God, and we've got direct access to God. But we have Americanized Christianity to make it all about me, my wants, my wishes, my tastes, my needs, and I don't need the stickiness of community, the messiness of community, the awkwardness of community, because people from Antioch, when they come around and I'm talking to my friends, they're going to embarrass me, and I'd rather just say that I'm not even a part of that. The messiness of relationships, and people letting us up and down and left and right, and we don't want all that, so we're just going to go, it's just me and you, Jesus, because we've been conditioned to think that it is all about me. We're radically individual. It's all about my choice and my freedom. And that's an Americanized version of Christianity. It is not what the New Testament envisions. And so I love Francis Schaeffer again with his family and his kids, three daughters and son, bringing people into their home and giving them jobs. You're, you're to get the firewood. Um, and sitting there in the evenings dialoguing and talking and doing it in relationship and realizing that mission, anything we do for God, that, that God plans, mission, Christianity, is a community thing. It's the way God designed it. Okay? Um, we're way out of time, so if the band can come, we're about to take um, the offering and you know everything else, your social security number, stuff like that. Um, but let me just pray for us. And this, we're just kind of scratching it, and if, if it's... If it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant and you're only getting like a little bit, that's cool. Um, next week we'll talk a little bit more and just see kind of what we can look, looking at our culture through the grid of Francis Schaeffer and kind of what he did. Let's pray. Father, uh, may we learn to love you with our minds and may this church be a church that cares enough about you to think through the issues deeply and be able to explain those and reason with people and dialogue with people that you care about. Men and women that are made in your image. So Father, I just pray for my own impatience, my own radical commitment to myself, that I'd be able to get outside of that and live missionally about others, understanding your truth, understanding the things that are outside of me, that it's not just about my own creation and my own freedom. May I chase hard after you. May we as a church chase hard after you and not just sit back and expect everything to be done for us. Because if we seek, we will find. And if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And, and so may we run after you. May we find you. May we not just sit and want an experience to happen to us. Father, I just pray that you banish lazy Christianity from within this body. Father, may you just raise up Francis Schaeffer's and people that have the integrity to figure things out as they go and to be authentic. That the way and the truth and the life, like we learned last week, would be their way and their truth and their life. And that people would see it and know it and be hungry for that. May we live like we know that we're made in your image and that there's somewhere that we're growing towards. There's a goal. There's an idea. There's a plan. May we live like that and show people the way. We pray this in Christ.